Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Scott designed at Apple and for Apple computers. He has taught at Stanford, Carnegie Mellon. His company, Bespoke, has a clear mission, and I love it. Apply good industrial design and rapid prototyping techniques to make kick-ass prosthetics. Hard to beat that. Um, and one of the things he said, which is kind of interesting, and, and you'll see it when um, you're looking at amputees who have different tastes. And prior to Scott really venturing in this, if you were an amputee, you pretty much got what everyone else got. And if you think about it, if you were told that um, all of you had to wear X every single day, how unsatisfactory that would be to you. So as he says, some like motorcycles, some like modern, some like tattoos. And trying to figure out a way to satisfy the needs of those people. So it is my pleasure to welcome Scott Summit. Thanks. Hi. So this is really exciting for me because I normally speak to medical people or, or business people or all these people I really don't relate to so much um, because we're doing a lot of interesting stuff in those areas. But my world, I'm industrial design. I come from the arts, and that's the kind of crowd that I relate to most. So I like speaking here. Um, just so I know who I'm talking to, um, how many engineers are there in the crowd? Just like hardcore engineering? Okay. Uh, fine arts? Artists, studio arts, that kind of uh, creative media, new technology media arts. Okay, right on. Well, okay, there's going to be some weird stuff for, for everyone in this. Yeah, my background is industrial design. You know, would be an architect, but don't have the attention span, which is usually what leads somebody into industrial design in the first place. And so trying to come up with some interesting new ways to rethink traditional things and to reinvestigate the way we know some of these products that, that have become very familiar, and the prosthetic leg being a big one. But I'll kind of jump back in time here a little bit and, and look at some of the way, some, some of the things we think about, and some of the things that really inspire me. Um, one, of the, one of the weird ones, motion. How do, you, how do you capture something that doesn't have physical shape? This is a you know, shot from Da Vinci, one of his sketches, and it kind of shows how he's struggling to, to capture. How do, you, how do you freeze motion and embody it? and represent it, something that really doesn't have a physical form. I think that because it's so elusive, that's why the artists and the creatives, we spend so much time trying to figure out ways to, to capture it and to call it ours. Um, I think that no matter what, we, we don't get terribly close. The closest it's, is always that it's like Buckminster Fuller trying to create something round and something flat. You can create an approximation, but when you take that dimension out of it, in this case, with motion, you're talking about time and, and energy and, and, um, and volume. When you take that something out of it and represent it in a different way, you lose something. And it's that that makes it, I think, so intriguing. And you look at works of, like, Boccioni, in this case, trying to capture motion. Well, the body is almost irrelevant. The body is kind of sidelined. What he's trying to capture is really the energy and the displacement of air that the body represents more than the body itself. And if you take the uh, New Descending a Staircase by Marcel Duchamp, um, same thing. The body is very sidelined. It's really about this motion and energy, the two things that are so elusive and that really don't have any physical form. Trying to make them physical is where it gets interesting. 
And that kind of was brought up, I was thinking when, when I was at a, a show of Edward Moybridge that I went to with Dave Yeager a few months back, and the curator of the show was explaining where, where Moybridge comes from. And it was really revealing to get a look inside Moybridge's head. Now, Moybridge is known for this. Um, if anyone's not familiar with it, it, it was considered one of the origins of what is now film and, and movies. But what was interesting about Moybridge was that he did not set out to create the film industry, you know, and all that came out of it, all those. He was tinkering with state-of-the-art technology at the time, which was a camera that could take a pretty fast picture. And that's about it. And he had a, a need at the time, which in the greater context was fairly trivi- trivial. He was trying to capture the motion of a horse so that they could understand how horses move so they could make a better racehorse. You know, trivial. They were not setting out to create any grand new thing. They were just using modern technology to explore a challenge that they had in front of them. And cards fell into place inadvertently after that. But what I thought was also really cool is that he was a maker. You know, he, they didn't have the term or the fair or anything else at the time. It's just that the tools didn't exist for him to do the kind of things that he wanted to do. So he made his own tools. He, he tinkered, he explored, he took things apart and wired them up and duct taped them if they had duct tape in the 1850s. But he was creating all the stuff with his hands to get the, the results that he was looking for. And I think that that culture and that mentality really permeates a lot of the creatives of the day. And I think that's one of the things that the, we see all over, especially in the Bay Area, I find more and more, is you have people really getting their hands dirty and experimenting with things and taking them apart and breaking them and blowing them up and then taking them out to Burning Man and things like that. That's where all the creative energy, kind of it's this great culture of trying all these different things. You know, and I think that we're in this fascinating age now of confluence where technology and computational power, you know, power for computing is now really cheap. The software you need to do really amazing things is now free. Uh, Three-dimensional printing has come in from left field. Three-dimensional scanning used to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, you know, this is a pretty decent 3D scanner if you're willing to hack it a little bit. Or if you have a Connect Xbox, you know, you've got a really good 3D scanner for 150 bucks. Um, All of these very expensive, prohibitive, complex tools are now at your fingertips. You can do anything you can dream up with them. And that is disruptive. And then you, you infuse that with some other ideas, you know, biomimicry, the idea of using biology and some of the, the solutions that biology has come up with to solve some of the challenges that we have. Um, mass customization, something that we just haven't thought of for 100 years because we've been in the mass production age, not mass customization age. So we're back to this kind of guild and craft thinking. All of these different ingredients are kind of in this Cambrian soup right now. And that's where I think things get really interesting because it really sets the stage for some exciting stuff to evolve. So Moybridge captured these pictures, these famous pictures of the horse running. And by spinning them fast enough, you could see this horse running. And it took something that was intangible, motion, and it made it a lot more visible. It it presented information in a way that nobody had ever imagined before. And it wasn't, like I was saying, it wasn't his intent. It was an accidental byproduct of trying to find a better racehorse. And so Moybridge kept exploring from there, and he was looking at what happens when you can actually capture motion, represent motion in ways that you couldn't before? You can see things you couldn't see before. You can, your brain will start to, to see this information in a new way. Um, and there's you know, the Matrix. That's, aside from Keanu Reeves' acting, what it had that was really cool was great ways to present motion. 
it, it stopped people in space and moved around them in ways that we'd never seen before. And you know, that's what kind of made the movie, is that you had these visuals that, again, communicated information, in this case motion, in a way that we'd never seen before. And so going from Keanu Reeves to 3D printing, it's like, well, they're, they're similar in more ways than we'd believe, I guess. <laughs> Big static machines. But um, this, this machine is actually a really, really exciting machine. It's groundbreaking and revolutionary and disruptive, even though it looks like a big, boring industrial machine. Um, this is a 3D printer that's capable of doing large structural things. And even though that sounds boring, and even though that was kind of adopted and curated by the engineers through its lifespan, it's actually really exciting just because of the attributes that it offers. And those, a couple of those being, for one thing, complexity comes at no extra cost. When you're three-dimensionally printing something, actually I should pause, three-dimensional printing, you design something on your CAD station, you send it over to this printer, it's like an inkjet printer you'd find on your desktop, only it creates something in 3D. It sits there and it creates them layer by layer. It centers it with an electron beam or a laser out of polymer or metal or ceramic or whatever you throw in it. And it creates it layer by layer until you have a physical artifact in hand. But because it's creating it layer by layer, it's not like a CNC machine that is subtracting it from a block and, that, and therefore is very limited. This, because you're adding it essentially molecule by molecule, you're, you're creating this thing. You can, anything you can dream up, any shape, no matter how complex, you can physically embody. That is really crazy disruptive. And where I think that's interesting is that it's the dream tool for artists and designers and creatives because it's relatively cheap to make stuff. You know, that's huge for, for our class. Um, it's very fast. You can print something overnight you know, that, that would take months to build if you were going to try to hand fab it. And complexity, again, no matter how complex it is, you can dream up something, doesn't matter. So it changes business models. It lets us, it opens doors that we never thought possible. So I'll kind of throw out a couple of the, the people who I really admire who have taken this on the open highway and you know, see what it can do. Um, Jeffrey Mann, he has a series of sculptures. Um, he's an artist in the UK. Uh, I'd really recommend checking out his website. He has far more stuff than I can show here. Um, what I like is that he calls this series um, long exposure. Even though he's not using camera, he's using scanning and 3D printing, he's using this camera metaphor to describe what he's creating here. And what I love is, okay, this, is, this was created by using motion capture, like you'd use with Avatar or you know, anything else. Um, motion capture, but on a moth, you know, something very humble. And the moth is flying around a flame. And so what you're seeing there is, oh, then he three-dimensionally printed the results. So, and that is a light diffuser. It hangs a light bulb in the middle of it, and that's, that becomes a lamp. And what's exciting about that is, on a couple levels, he didn't actually sit down and design anything. The moth did all the work. You know, he created an environment or an ecosystem within which a thing would manifest, but he didn't actually sit down and design a lamp like, like the things hanging overhead. He set up an environment, and then he stepped back and let the moth do all the uh, design of it. But also, just like Moybridge or The Matrix or anything, this is communicating actually information. I see that as just raw information there. Because you're looking into the flight of a moth. You're getting into its head a little bit here and seeing how it moves. This is called dogfight. It's two moths having a little standoff. And you're getting into its... You, you get to see the, something into its displacement of air. And there was, there was no moth. You're looking at essentially a contrail, like a jet would leave. But it's the contrail of a moth flying through space. The same thing here with a bird taking off. You see in the lower right corner there, um, that's the cross-section of the bird 
You know, the bird, again, is the designer. He just was the facilitator to make it happen. He had no control. He had no kind of iron fist over the design process. He just set up a situation and let it happen. And these beautiful, unpredictable sculptures resulted. There's a bird taking off, I think, or landing. Not sure. Um, and again, now, if you're trying to make that any other way other than 3D printing, you know, don't even try because the complexity is just prohibitive. You'll never get there. If you can 3D print something as easy as sending it on your desktop printer, yeah, go ahead. And, you know, it'll take overnight depending on, you know, it doesn't matter how complex it is. That's one of the advantages you now get with three-dimensional printing is you can come up with stuff and you just don't have to factor in can it actually be physically embodied. And when you can take information and make it physical and actually walk around it, move it, study it, it, it presents the information in a way that, who knows, you know, it's, this is artistic. It's not really meant to advance the world in any way beyond its value as a piece of art. But it's a form of information that we just are not familiar with, we've never seen before. Uh, this is not his work. I don't know, I forgot whose it was. Um, same kind of thing, capturing motion, capturing something intangible and fleeting and making it physical. And this is one of my favorite works. This is an artist named, or an industrial designer artist named Marcel Wanders out of Amsterdam, out of the Droog Collective. And he didn't capture something, a moth or a bird that was flying past that actually had a, a final instantiation. This is a sneeze. This is, he did a series of these vases, uh, sinusitis, polyonitis, and influenza. And so this is a sneeze. This is, they, they captured a little chunk of flying, tumbling snot. And they scanned it while it was in motion, flying at around 90 miles an hour, apparently. And they generated the point cloud data, they surfaced it, they blew it up, like physically enlarged it, and 3D printed it. And you can buy that at the Museum of Modern Art for around 600 bucks. Which, I just love that you could get snot into the MoMA and sell it for 600 clams. It's like that. You nailed it if you can do that. You know, that's when you know you've arrived. But it's a beautiful thing. We've never seen it before. And Marcel didn't do the design. You know, he didn't, you know, it was some combination of pollen and somebody's nose that did the design. You know, and so this is kind of Marcel Wander's sense of humor. But it's also showing us, again, it's information. This is raw information in its, in its crudest form that only lived for an ephemeral moment in time. And then it was gone. It spun itself into a different shape and evaporated or landed in a Kleenex. So fantastic way to envision information that we just never saw possible before. Um, freedom of Creation is a friend of mine, Jane Kittenen, Um And he's tapping into this, I, I don't know if he's deliberately tapping into this quote, but I think he's representing this quotation from Joe Krauss. Uh, the 20th century mass production world was about dozens of markets for millions of people. The 21st is all about millions of markets for dozens of people. And I think that is fairly prescient in that it's describing how we are in an age now where we can actually not think of people as this mass bell curve, but we can start thinking of individual people, smaller markets. And some of these tools really let us start thinking of smaller markets instead of amortizing huge markets like the GMs and all that Budweiser nonsense. Because um, when Yane creates a lamp, it's three-dimensionally printed. If nobody in the world buys this lamp, he lost a bunch of ones and zeros. That's all he lost. He has no upfront investment because it's printed on demand. If you buy one of his cool lamps for what, 800 bucks or whatever, um, they print one and they send it to you. He has no inventory, no startup cost. He created this business while sleeping on his friend's couch in Amsterdam. That's, that's this kind of new market, new business model. You know, what a dream tool for artists to start a business, in this case, a very successful lamp company, 
um, or housewares of all kinds, with zero upfront cost. And now Karim Rashid, one of the, the really prominent designers of this generation, he's working with Yane. He created this lamp. You know, you can't make this any other way because the complexity is just prohibitive. There's no way it could be made 10 years ago. This is all tapping into what happens if you can just print anything unbound by the reality. This is just right out of Karim's imagination. Or this, this is backed up by mimicry, looking at the trabecular structure of inside of a bone and using that as inspiration to say, okay, there's something really beautiful about the way nature handles its problems. It's not purely doing it, well, it is doing it for purely pragmatic reasons from nature's perspective, but there's a beauty that results. And in this case, it's this trabecular structure. And Yane took it, turned it into this fruit basket, fruit bowl, fruit plate, um, that is oddly familiar because it has these natural principles, uh, the Voronoi tessellation pattern that, that is throughout our body and throughout nature. And can you imagine if you're a company making lamps and you print this, you'd be taking a lot of chances because if that costs a million dollars or half a million dollars to tool up and stack up inventory and stock up and, and all that stuff, 10 trips to China to get it made, you'd be really, really risk averse. And so that's why a lot of the stuff that is in our world, you know, a lot of lamps and cars and everything are very risk averse because they have so much upfront cost, it's terrifying that nobody might buy it and it's market flop and they actually go in debt. With this business model, it's a whole different thing. If nobody buys it, nobody wants it, you have lost nothing. So it democratizes creativity. It invites creativity. It invites you to take chances and fail and fall apart because you don't lose anything if nobody goes for it. So I think what that does to the business model for people like us, the artists and the designers and all, that's cool because we don't lose stuff. We don't, we, there, there isn't a cost to risk. Bathsheba Grossman is actually making a full-blown living also off this. She's, she's one of my, my all-time heroes. She's, uh, she lives somewhere here in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I uh, don't know exactly where, but um, she makes amazing, amazing surreal sculptures. She's a mathematician and an artist. So she makes these crazy sculptures that are so complex and so beautiful and challenging. But they can only be 3D printed, obviously, because she you know, is the only one with the mind that can actually put this stuff together in the first place. And beautiful forms we've never seen before. They're oddly familiar because she taps into nature. She taps into complex math. She creates forms that represent motion, that capture motion, that everything else. But her work is only a product of the, the new tools, the modern tools, and some of this modern thinking of biomimicry and mass customization and small markets. So that's kind of the preface. So I, industrial designer, I've been an industrial designer for years and years. Um, did lots and lots of stuff for Apple and Nike and Palm and Silicon Graphics and all those guys. Um, and it was a fun ride, but more exciting stuff kind of lured me away. And it's this idea of really tapping into the new tools and some of the big problems to really create something meaningful, a lot more meaningful in, in my eyes than creating another laptop computer or another cell phone. Um, and the, what I kind of pegged as something I'd always wanted to explore was the prosthetic limb. It seemed like, okay, it's, it's engineered beautifully. You have machine titanium and things are optimized in FEA analysis and everything. Beautiful, incredible piece of carbon and modern high-tech stuff. But it's kind of geeky mechanical beautiful and not human beautiful. It doesn't, you wake up and you see that in the morning, it doesn't really kind of get you going and excited to have that as part of your life. And for an amputee, this is a huge part of their life. This is the biggest part of their life. This is a part of their body. It doesn't, doesn't get bigger than that. And so, um, you know, despite all the mechanical wizardry and the genius that's gone on into the advanced kinematics, 
it still is a machine. It still is kind of a, the way I see it, it's a halfway done project. It's brilliant the first half, but okay, let's take it to the next half. So if everybody probably knows the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's this idea of saying that you have your basic needs of shelter and survival, and then you work your way up until you're actually fully realized, actualized at the very top level. Well, from, from my perspective with prosthetics, they kind of got this far. They said, okay, we'll get you up and walking again, and then you're on your own. You know, and, and so the amputees I work with, um, a lot of amputees now, some of them have not worn pants. They have not worn shorts in years. Hottest day, and they're out there wearing long pants. Um, some of them I've seen have come in with, with socks, uh, uh, athletic socks, stuffed with more athletic socks to give them a shape of a calf, and they can try to kind of push it and pull it into a shape of a calf. Um, people have used bubble wrap and duct tape to create kind of an approximation of a body. And it's one of these things you think, my God, that how sad it is. You know, we have this human need to feel symmetric and whole and real. And you're not going to get very far with bubble wrap and duct tape, but they try anyway. And so that is kind of the premise for why I've been doing the work that I do. Um, to me, it's, it's kind of like if you go to a car dealer and you say, hey, I, I, want, I want one of these. And the car dealer says, you know, rolls this out and says, here you go. You're saying, well, yeah, that's, that's what I had in mind. And he's going, well, that, that's what it is. You know, same thing. You say, well, there's something more. There's, something, there, there's some, a real value to something that really grabs your spirit and inspires you, that doesn't just keep you from falling over, but it gets you excited to live another day. That a subtle difference, but I, I just feel that it's been lost in the industry. So the focus that we've had has been on getting a couple of these basic human needs in. Uh, the first being symmetry. You know, there's something so unique, so personal about your morphology that mass production just isn't going to get you there. So throw mass production out the window. You're not going to get human symmetry for individual bodies through any, any process like that. The other is, is expression, that let somebody treat it as their own jewelry, as their own art. This was an artist, Sarah Burgess, created this work. And we use this, you'll see it again a little bit later. But if somebody wants to treat it as art, they should be able to treat their body as art. And then we also want to be completely honest. We don't want to create anything artificial with the body. We want to take the person's real body and present it for the beauty that it is, but not alter it and, and not be deceptive. We want to be thoroughly honest about it because, in our view, that's the way we can let the person really take their, their condition, you know, being an amputee, and then really make it as real as possible, be accepting it of it in, as their uh, part of their life, um, and, and treat this the prosthetic limb not as this uninvited house guest, but as something that they're excited about. So to that end, we, um, we invented our own 3D scanner because we couldn't afford the really fancy stuff, so we just hacked one. And we've hacked others since then, and we have new ones, so, this is, so I can actually show this. Um, and we actually designed that case, made that in a long weekend, and then we 3D printed that. So that's, you know, again, the joys of 3D printing is if you want to make your own tools and your own equipment, just print them. You know, so, um, and, and I kind of thought Moybridge would love it if he saw that, because, yeah, we just kind of hacked this together, printed it. We were afraid that somebody else might see it and reverse engineer it, so we threw all these, like, extra little details, like those tubes on the side and things like that, to make it look so mysterious that nobody would be able to figure out what we did. Um, but it's, it's actually a lot simpler than it looks. This is the world's first self-contained wireless 3D scanner ever made. Um, so we were pretty happy with that. And here's the results that you get. This is me. Um, when you 3D scan something, you get an approximation of whatever it is you're scanning in triangles, lots and lots and lots of triangles. If you have a really high-res scanner, you'll get super dense concentration of triangles, but it's always going to be triangles. And then you can create surfaces and do things like that out of it. 
Um, we used something called a white light scanner, so my dark hair didn't work so well, so we had to wrap it up with a white stocking so that the, the head would scan. But um, that's, it was fairly simple. We did it in a long weekend. So here's the, um, here's the process that we came up with for how to create a person's body. We start with a 3D scan. Um, we let the computers generate all the morphology, in this case of the person's lost limb and of their surviving limb. And computers do that really well. We've hacked a bunch of software together to make that happen. And then we can take the sound side limb that represents as close as you're ever going to get to what was lost. And we mirror it on the computer. It takes under a second. And then we superimpose that over the prosthetic limb. And they don't always fit absolutely perfect, so there's some stuff that goes on there. And then we create essentially two fairing parts. We call them fairings because that's a term taken from motorcycles. And then we invite the person to personalize it. If they have patterns they like, or materials, leather, metal, whatever they can dream up, we invite them to be a part of the process. Because in our eyes, that's, that's what connects the person to the, the final product. It goes from there into, it goes down that wire, and then it goes into a 3D printer. And this is kind of our representation of what they look like, but it's not too far off. And it's this electron beam that's zapping it out layer by layer, just like a printer. And then when it's done, you have a physical thing. It's durable. It's strong. We wrap it in leather or whatever the person's good for, and then that becomes part of their body. Um, this actually, this is a picture of this guy, Chad, who we work with. You'll see more pictures of him. When he put it on for the first time, he kept feeling his calf, and it was kind of weird. He's, he's like all quiet, and he's feeling his calf, and he's saying, I haven't felt that in eight years. He said, you know, I said goodbye to that eight years ago we had cancer. And, you know, before the surgery, the night before the surgery, he just said goodbye to his leg in the weirdest way. And he was describing it. And it was really, it was touching. And, and he was saying, yeah, then he just assumed that for the rest of his life he'd feel this titanium pipe, you know, that, that was supposed to be a facsimile of, of all that's left. And, and so now all of a sudden he's got his shape back. And as trivial as that sounds, that, that means everything to the amputee. Um, also just little details. He can pull up his socks, you know. And they don't wrap around a pipe. Um, this is Mike. He lost his leg in a water ski accident uh, right up there in Tahoe Donner, uh, Donner Lake. And so to get this to kind of really connect with Mike, we took an old bomber jacket, an old leather jacket, and we slashed it up with an X-Acto knife. And that leather became the surround for it. So that became his shape. And we gave him a tattoo down the back. This because... Why not? If you're going to make it personal, make it really personal. And there's actually, you can't really see it, I don't think, but right down there at the bottom um, of his Achilles heel, there's a little recycling symbol because it's actually curbside recyclable in a weird way. You know? And also 3D printing, just on the green front, is almost immeasurably trivial. as far as far it's, it's a 140-watt laser running for 10, 20 hours. It's, it's like using your garage door opener once to create a, a leg you know, or leaving the lights on overnight. It's... it's Trivial, which is another thing that's just kind of exciting about this technology, is that I've never known any technology that allows so little energy to go so far, to have so much impact. You know, normally it's, it's commensurate energy impact. This is something that's completely disproportionate there. So John, nope, James. Okay, James came to us, um, and he's, he told this really gruesome story about the motorcycle accident that took his leg. Uh, that's about half the people we've dealt with are gruesome motorcycle stories, which is painful to hear. Um, and I noticed the tattoo that he has on his right forearm there. And I was saying, well, do, you know, do you have the other tattoos? And he said, well, I did. I had another one on my calf. 
And so he described it, and I recreated it. And so now he has his tattoo back. And you know, part of it is showing off, yeah, look what we can do with 3D printing. We can do you know, anything we can dream up. But the other part is to really connect him with this part of his body, that if you can give him his body back, you know, in the details, in the nuances, in the tattoos, you're doing something right, you know, the way I see it. And then it was a Harley that he had that, that uh, he crashed, um, or that he was actually T-boned on, um, all chrome and black, and he showed me. And so this is chrome and black. We used uh, nickel plating, polished, mirror-polished nickel, and we used a black polymer that we tumbled, and it has this beautiful matte black finish. And so he's been wearing it. The funny thing is you can't really wear shorts when you ride a motorcycle. That's just really stupid. But for the photo shoot, he did. And it was this kind of amazing effect because all of a sudden, you know, we, we saw it, and me and the photographer are looking back, we're saying, holy shit, that looks like it's part of the bike. You, know, you can't really tell where James and the bike, you know, it looks like it's, it's just another component that happens to be James-shaped. So that was just cool to see and very validating. And James saw it, and he just he loved that. So Chad, is, um, he came to us, and, and he had lost his leg, I was mentioning, to cancer. He's also a competitive soccer player. You know, and as you might imagine, you can't really play competitive soccer when... You've got a pipe, you know, a 30-millimeter titanium pipe that's representing your leg because everyone's going to break their toes when they bump into you. And you can't really control the ball when it comes your way because pipes are just bad for that. So we scanned his leg, did our process. Then we decided, okay, we wanted to create a leg for him that would look like it came right out of the gym bag. So created this hexagonal pattern, took his name right off his jersey, number 11 right there. Oh, you can come up after, I guess, is the uh, best way to check it out. We made it extra strong so that it will survive anything. It's super, super durable. And let him play again. And now he's, he's back to playing fully competitively with this new leg. And he says everyone else on the team is actually really jealous of it, which is just weird. They all just thought it was super cool. Um, you know, bomb-proof strong. But then we, had, we wanted to create something for him to wear off the field. And so his existing component set, his existing hardware, is underneath this leg. So these, these attach on, they clamp on to give shape like a, a fairings, like fairings you'd find on a motorcycle or an airplane. So in this case, we, again, scanned his sound side leg, mirrored it over. This is uh, a brown suede leather that we found didn't wear well, so we had to replace that. Um, and we gave him a little chrome emblem there. And the, the whole point of the chrome emblem was to make sure that we never communicated that we were trying to look human. The whole idea is to say, nope, it's not human. It's really cool but it's definitely not trying to be human. You know, we're trying to be man-made, and we're not apologizing for it. That's the, the message that we want to communicate with what we're designing. Deborah lost her leg to a, uh, a motorcycle accident as well, and when we started communicating by email, I was saying, well, if you can give me visual cues that help tell me what your, where your aesthetic lies, where, you know, what, what you connect with visually. So she sent me this picture. She said, I love this, this painting, you know, Russian deconstructivism. Okay, <laughs> Great. I, I love Russian deconstructivism too, but I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with that. That doesn't help. It's like, try again. So she sent Erte. I was like, okay. Long flowing nouveau lines. I can kind of work with that. Do you got anything more? You know, anything, any, any visual cues. So she sent me the, these uh, pictures from this really crap movie that I hope nobody else wasted seven bucks on because <laughs> it was awful. But the, tr- the, the posters and the, the big billboards they had were really, really compelling and cool, and it probably lured people into this crap movie. But she sent me this, and she said, I, I really relate to this because sometimes that's what I feel like. 
you know, part machine, part human, and I want to feel like this kind of sexy cyborg. And so it's like, oh, man, you tell me that, that's music. Yeah, we can do that. So she's a runner, so she had really great calves to start with. So, you know, scanned the leg, created this, and then we, we hired this artist, uh, Sarah Burgess, to create these really beautiful patterns that we then turned into 3D, we wrapped, we did all these Boolean functions and 3D printed it. And that's, can you see that? Is that, I don't know. If the house lights dim any, that might, yeah, if lights will dim by half, that would, that would be fine too. But, um, and so we, we wanted to create something that was, in this case, lace that represented the body instead of lace wrapping around the body. And we've never seen that happen. We're doing that right now for a soldier. Um, we're creating these tattoos, these really crazy tattoos. And they'll be free-floating, free-standing in space tattoos that represent the body. They don't surround it, and they're, they're floating in air. And so, in this case, um, she texts me. She emails every time she hears somebody, every time somebody stops her and tells her what a cool leg she's got. So she texted me from the airport the other day, saying, hey, the, the, the screener just couldn't stop, couldn't get over this leg. And then some guy, in the, uh, some guy in a grocery store just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so that's, there's something really validating about that. Um, she wanted fishnet stockings. And the picture doesn't work out well here. And she's wearing frumpy shoes, which killed us. But she's, the, this is the, the black part in the front is fishnet stockings. The back, she also really loves Charles and Ray Eames. So did a, a walnut veneer to try to kind of capture a mid-century modern Eames aesthetic. Um, we found out really soon after just how well walnut wears, which is not too well when it's on a leg. Um, we did quilted leather for her just to give it this kind of Chanel feel um, that she can wear when she's at, at her design studio. And so from our perspective, this is just a canvas now. Once we, once we take the person, create their data, and do the data set that we need as our underlay, the person's just our canvas. We can have all kinds of fun with it. And so she's, she's all too happy with it. There's a shot where she's on my motorcycle because hers crashed in the fateful moment. And just some more quotes that she's, she's given us about it. So here's that, the artwork that we had commissioned. And we laser tattooed that into the leather that was her calf. And so she can swap that out at will. And so we're taking all kinds of cool tattoos now. And we're scanning them and take the black and white JPEG. And we can just laser tattoo that into the leather. So it's kind of up to anybody's creativity to see what they can do. Where this goes, well... One of the things that we're kind of excited for is that when you have a process, a technology, where the complexity is completely free, it really invites you to, to push it much further. Um, this is what I, I think the prosthetic of the future will look like. We made a couple of these, and we, had them, we test drove them, and they, they walked really well. We're, we've got more testing to do before they're ready for the, the real world. But it gives you a couple of the things that you can't get with any cost of a prosthetic currently. Um, it gets you your shape, you know, perfect biomorphic shape that represents your own body. Uh, the tibial structure the, the, you know, up in the front there, the load-bearing part, it's hollow and it's trabeculated just like a chicken bone. So the strength to weight ratio is off the charts. The foot is, is exactly from this guy's original foot shape, so his shoes fit perfectly, as, as weird as that sounds. It's, um, here we go, it's made in America. We, we, there's no point in us sending these overseas because you just stand to lose time and money if you send it overseas. It's a printer's a printer. Um, and it's also uh, fully recyclable. You know, this is, we put number seven on it. It's curbside. 
um, which is weird to think of, but that's just kind of part of, part of our beliefs as well. Um, you know, just like the human body in its own weird way. Um, the other thing is it's dishwasher safe, which, as absurd as that sounds, it's really important because the rest of you can stay clean. If you can throw your leg in your, your leg washer that you have in your kitchen, that's all the better. And so when I first had the print of this, I was doing tests on it to see if that was, what was really dishwasher safe. So I threw it in my dishwasher and I forgot about it. And I had a date that night and they made her dinner and afterwards we're cleaning up. And she opens it like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay, I forgot to tell you about that. And she's looking at me like, I'm Jeff Dahmer. Like, okay, you didn't tell me about that, did you? Um, so we did a bunch of different variations off of that. Um, this is, you know, again, this, the, the feature set here of having your morphology back, having the, the contours and the shapes and the, uh, the strength-to-weight ratio, all the stuff, that would be you know, sixty dollars to $100,000 if you're to get that over the mark, on the open market. Um, we can make that for 5000 <clears throat> because the cost is not tied to complexity. Complexity is free no matter what. You know, $5,000 is as beautiful or as complex as you can make it. It's the same 5000 and so, and, and ideally, I'd love to see this go to developing countries. That's, that's kind of my big vision. So that you can simply scan somebody with your, with your portable scanner, which we all have. You can generate your geometry in the cloud, because that's what the cloud's there for. And then you can print it and send it to them. Right now, it's too expensive for most of the developing country. So that's, that's a downside. But one of the upsides is that it can't be dismantled, because it's printed in its final physical shape. It can't be disassembled because it was never assembled in the first place. So as far as theft, theft goes out the window because if you can't part it out and sell the parts on the black market, if it only fits one person because it was designed off of that one person's morphology, it has absolutely no extrinsic value. So the intrinsic value goes to the roof. So there's something, it kind of changes the whole equation of meaning to a person when you create something that absolutely cannot be stolen. You know, somebody's absolutely safe having it. Um, this is John. This is a variation of the same leg. Looking at if uh, th- this was my, my kind of take on it. if I lost my leg, what would I want? I would want something along the lines of this. And tried to do that with all of them. Um, the, John lost his leg from the mid thigh from a drunk driver who ran over his, uh, his truck. Um, and so, you know, all three dimensionally printed parts, in this case, metal plated wrapped uh, tooled leather around his lower leg there. And he can swap that out in about 10 seconds for, in this case, black leather with white top stitching. You know, you try to do that with a real leg, it's not really an option. So um, that's one of my favorite shots of it. Um, when his girlfriend saw that, she, she turned to me and she said, wow. She looks at John, she's saying, I like that leg better than that leg. And, and he kind of paused and scratched his head and he's like, Nobody says that. You know, nobody's ever said that to an amputee before. And, and so he was kind of blown away by that. And then he thought about it. And, and then she, she turns to me and she's like, how do I get one? <laughs> it's like, You're not going to like the process. It's going to hurt. And so, um, so that, I think, is where things are. We're, we're at this really interesting stage of a lot of technologies all intersecting and all suddenly affordable, easy to use, and we have a lot of challenges. There's no shortage of challenges. We chose one slice here. We're doing 10 other things that I can't talk about until patents issue. But there's so many things you can do now when you start mix and matching the challenges, the technologies, the new solutions, some of the new thought processes and the methodologies. Mix them all together, and you can just do some really amazing things. 
So that's why like, I like speaking to guys like you because you guys are the ones, this is all your fingertips. These tools are all there for your disposal for, for a dime. So you can take them up on their open road and see what they can do, and you can do some really amazing stuff with them. So I hope you enjoyed that all. Thank you. I was just thinking when we, we actually began with the, uh, a lecture about Mybridge, and, and Mybridge always knocked me out because it seemed like he did that without, you know, the photography was only a few years old, and this whole idea of doing motion, and I think this is the same territory. I think it's really exciting that we that sort of think everything's been invented that should be, but obviously it hasn't. And the other thing I was going to say, this idea of language, I'm a... I live in the two-dimensional realm, and so that I, using the term printing is really interesting to me because, you know, you could, there's a lot of different ways you could talk about manufacturing, but printing does say something about time, and it is different than, you know, constructing, like building a house or something. I, I, I think that, that word is, it'll make, I have to think about it completely differently. Which the semantics of this technology are especially messy mm-hmm. because technology was born out of engineers who right. are not good at semantics. They're, right. they're horrible linguists. So the original term was stereolithography, which was lithography printing stereo given another dimension. Um, it kind of caught on, but that was one specific one and all these other variation technologies evolved. So then they had to come up with a new one. So the engineers left to their own devices called it additive manufacturing or additive fabrication because it's an additive process. You're assembling molecules. But there's nothing more boring and sterilizing about a design than calling it additive manufacturing. So then the press got on it, and they kept saying, well, how do you make it? Do you, do you cut it out of machine? Do you machine it out of a block? Or, and they said, no, no, we, it's like printing. Like, oh, okay, we'll call it 3D printing. The engineers are going crazy because they hate that <laughs> because it's a metaphor. Right. But it's the only way that, that we can really describe it, I think, is calling it printing because that, to me, is what we do. You come up with your CAD model, you upload it, and three days later it shows up. To me, that's a really slow print job, but it's a three-dimensional print. And so I think that's the, the term that's going to probably outlive the rest. Well, the artists love it. I think that it's, it's actually really appropriate. Oh, so we have a list, a, a line. Thank you. Questions. Hi, um, my name is Wanjiko, and I had a question. Um, I wanted to know if you've ever gotten a project, I guess, where the person has both the, their legs missing, and you had to, like, print up, I guess, the, uh, the legs for them without having the original, like, one leg to kind of base off the next one. Without reference geometry. Um, I'm doing two of those right now. Um, one is a woman in New York, and she's going to be very, very famous, and you'll see her on all kinds of magazine covers soon um, because she's, she's kind of a celebrity. The other is a special forces sniper who stepped on a mine in Kandahar in Afghanistan and lost both legs in a split second. Um, and so, yeah, in her case, we're actually going to a model agency, and we're trying to find somebody who's the right distance from ground when somebody's sitting that distance and we have a couple different markers that we look for to capture a good approximation of what she would have been originally because we don't have anything to scan for so we we call it a morphology donor or on our website i think we're calling it a stand-in somebody who's willing to be a stand-in we called it a surrogates for a while except that movie is so crap we didn't want to be associated with it so we're calling them stand-ins and um so, yeah, so we're soliciting for her, and everybody wants to, you know, she's easy. The, the sniper is a little trickier because, um, because we're looking for, <laughs> if you guys know of any, help me out. We're looking for a guy about six foot three, does a ton of running, super athletic, really stocky fireman bone structure, about 210, 220 pounds, um, with just, you know, all kinds of muscles and, and everything like that. He looks like the cover of, of Men's Health magazine. So if you know of anybody, send him our way, because we're looking right now. <laughs> we haven't had any good luck. Um, we have a website, and we have kind of a call 
request, you know, call outs for here's what we're looking for. If you happen to be that person, come by. It won't hurt. You have to just wear shorts and we'll, we'll scan you in a, I think it's a second and one and three quarters seconds it takes to scan somebody. Um, so, yeah, we, are, we do look for morphology donors. We actually also had our lawyers. This is probably the first of its kind. Um, our lawyers are used to weird stuff coming from us, and so we actually asked them to draft up a body morphology donation document, which means I hereby release my morphology to this person. And we'll only do one person, one donor to one person, because, I don't know, it just seems right that way. We don't like the idea of reusing body parts. Um, but, yeah, we have now a legal document in place so that somebody signs away their rights to their morphology as a donation to somebody else. Um, we had another person, actually, uh, one of my students at Singularity University. She was a leg model. And so she, she wanted to be a donor for this other woman. Um, and she, the other woman is actually very athletic. She's a really extreme X Games athlete. And so the, this student of mine, she actually went to boot camp for like two weeks and toned up. And she just got in great shape. So when she came in, she's all excited because her, her calves were in super great shape. And she had just run like 10 miles that morning, so she's all toned. And then she actually stood just a little bit on her tiptoes while we were doing the scan just to, to really tone up her calves. So it was, it was really cool to see that, that type of donation of sorts happening. But, yeah, that, that's a big deal. So that is something that we work with as, right, as cool. much as we can. Thank you. You know, as you were talking, the theme from the $6 million man was running <laughs> through my head for some reason. I, I did actually a lecture uh, last week, and, and the title was WWOGD, question mark. And it was saying, yeah, this kind of sums up the story of my life. And anybody of, like, the generation who knows what we're talking about knows that that means what would Oscar Goldman do, you know. And then it's also $6 million. You can't do anything for $6 million. <laughs> That's like, we're looking for $6 million right now. You know, that's a B round of funding. That's nothing. So it's like, that's extra impressive that they could do that. Mm-hmm. Hi there, I'm Leif. Um, love your lecture. Um, everything that you're doing is great. I, ha- I was wondering, because you show you're mostly doing legs and stuff, have you had any interest in doing arms or other, yeah? Yeah, we've had a ton of requests for arms. The tricky part is that comparatively a leg is really simple. It's one axis here and the other one kind of rotates in some funny directions with limits. The arm is just infinite. You have 14 degrees of freedom on the arm. You've got rotation, translation. You've got every possible thing. Um, and on top of that, it's thinner. And so if we're surrounding something, we need all the mass we can get because we're surrounding you know, mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So we've got all these ideas and sketches and everything. I've really wanted to do arms and just make these super cool, beautiful arms. Um, because also the arm is so personal. You know, you see it all the time. You can't hide it under pants ever. And also the current state-of-the-art arms are these kind of weird, creepy hook things that just, they look like Stephen King designed them. And they're, they're very practical, and they're, they get a person to a, a much greater degree of freedom in their life. But, yeah, I think that it just needs some real consideration, some real thought into it to, to really uh, play out the person. But we haven't done arms yet, partly because we're, we're drinking from a fire hose. You know, we're all doing seven-day weeks and 12-hour days at our studio, and there's just so much more stuff than we could take on. So arms are on our horizon. All right. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks. Yeah. Hi. Um, I love this talk. I've actually done a little work on this myself. I have a, in senior studio, I did a little prosthetic leg for myself, even though I had both of them. I, ever since I saw a TED Talk with a woman who had two prosthetic legs. Amy Mullins. She's a good friend. Beautiful legs. Yeah, um, she has 14. But she's, okay, but Amy, she's great. She's 
complete sweetheart, and I was just visiting her in New York on Friday. Um, she also cheats. <laughs> she, she handed me these, this leg, and it was way too tall for her body. And so she gets an extra couple inches out of it. Yeah. And then she has another set that are, okay, she's cheating, and she gets extra inches there, and then she puts four-inch spike heels on them. And now she's, like, towering. But, it's, you know, it's like, Amy, you're cheating. It's not fair. <laughs> you know, you're, you're taking some liberties with this. Oh, and also the, the foot that she had. I was like, wow, it's a beautiful foot. Where'd that come from? She's like, oh, that's Elle McPherson's. I'm like, oh, Elle McPherson's, of course. How'd you get that? She goes, oh, I called her. Like, right, <laughs> cool. Um, I was wondering what it cost you to make one of those, and if I want to do some type of 3D prototyping, is there a company I could send my CAD drawings to to get them printed? And what kind of costs associated with that? Mm-hmm. It costs us, um, God, I don't know, since, since this... <laughs> Since this is being televised, I can't go into our cost structure because my, my investors will flay me. Um, but, yeah, we're not going to... Nobody in our company is going to retire on the Bahamas for what we're doing. You know, it, this is a labor of love. Um, it's, to me, this is a chance to be an artist for a living and, and just make enough to survive. Um, we're doing other things that are more profit-oriented, but this is really a labor of love. Um, so if you want to experiment with this, it's a dream time to experiment. Um, you can download free 3D software that's totally adequate from SketchUp or from Blender 3D or any number of places now have, have fully functional 3D apps. Um, Mesh Lab, or not Mesh Lab, uh, Mesh Mixer is a great one for just playing. There's so much Thingiverse. Try Thingiverse, T-H-I-N-G-I-verse. And you can download all these parts, mix and match them, do, do mashups, three-dimensional mashups in Mesh, Mesh Mixer. Um, all kinds of fun stuff. And then for your 3D, that's to generate your data. When you want to 3D print it, you can try, um, there's Panoco, which Panoco just teamed up two weeks ago with Autodesk, and they have something called 1-2-3-D, and you can just upload it, and they'll send you a part back. Um, I use Shapeways a lot, shapeways.com. It used to be owned by Philips. I don't know if it still is. Um, same thing. It's just it's um, like a Kinko's. You send them a file. They send it back. You select, do you want it in stainless steel? Do you want it in gold-plated? Do you want it any number of polymers, flexible, anything you like? Um, so there are a lot of these services now that are, that are totally there for you. They have limitations. They can't print the big things on, like a leg because these, the machine that created that was a million bucks. So they don't have the big fancy machines, but they have the little machines. But what's cool about companies like Shapeways and Pinoco are you can upload your file. You know, let's say you make a really cool chess set and you can upload those. Um, you can also put a market price on them. You know, and they say, okay, it costs three bucks to make each one. You say, okay, I'll charge 20. And if people start buying them and downloading them, Shapeways will do all the printing and sending to them, and then they'll just send you on your PayPal account the difference that you just pocketed from one to the next. So it's this kind of new weird marketplace. Bathsheba Grossman, the woman here in Santa Cruz, the artist mathematician, that's the way she makes a living is off of Shapeways, off of people actually going in and downloading her cool products. They cost her absolutely nothing to make, and she uploads them. If nobody buys them, nobody buys them. If a lot of people buy them, she makes them some pocket money. So it is a weird new business model. But yeah, those are all there for you. If you want to do fancier stuff like this, there are a lot of service bureaus. They'll charge you um, quite a bit, and you get creative strategies for how to cut the costs, and there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, 3D Systems has one called 3D Pro Parts. Uh, Fineline is a group I like a lot. Uh, Fineline Prototyping. Um, Sycon, uh, Forecast, Harvest. There are a lot, of the, a lot, a lot of vendors who will be happy to 3D print your parts. Thank you very much. Sure. Question. Yeah, yeah. Hi, great lecture. That was awesome. Really amazing 
stuff, Great, man. Thanks. Wow. Um, I just have I have two questions actually. One of them is, what's the most anyone's been tinkered with, like as far as not only prosthetics but also like transplants and you know maybe having some heart or vital organs also in addition to that. What's the most someone's ever been modified or changed? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one, the other question was. Um, it's, it sounds kind of absurd, but I heard it asked, I think it was at a TED talk. Um, kidneys. Huh? You're going to say kidneys? Uh, no, no, no. Um, I'm wondering, it, the question's kind of absurd, but it seems like we're heading in this direction. Um, how close are we to, to, in a sense, becoming immortal as far as being able to change all our parts and eyes and vital organs? How, how, what, is there a time frame that people are, because I've, I've Heard of another um, researcher's work, um, Aubrey de, de Grey. Are you familiar with his work? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's talking about you know expand you know um, prolonging a lifespan. Um, I think genetically. And so now, in addition to this, what's what are you guys looking at the next? You know, that's there, there are doctoral dissertations written on both of those topics. Um, Singularity University, which is up at NASA, it's this kind of think tank meets university meets. Post 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 doc school, um, I call it Ted U or Border Collie School because it's like it's like teaching the Border Collies the smartest dogs in the pound. Um, but I teach there, and, and it's amazing people, and they're all looking into just exactly that because it's based off of Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity Is Near. So the best way to answer that question is to read this book, and it's about that thick, and it's written by Ray Kurzweil, the smartest human being ever. So you know, get ready for a a big read. But he, he's exploring just that. And Singularity University is looking at that too, when the singularity is, when you can um, meld with, with uh, machinery enough that you can augment or prolong your life creatively that way. Um, there are people at Singularity who say we're already there, that immortality is, is already achievable. Um, I, don't, I don't know enough to second-guess them. Um, the part, as far as being able to print out replacement parts, you can currently do that with, it's called three-dimensional uh, collagen scaffolding. Collagen, and I, this is out of my world, so anyone who's a bio person is going to shred me for this. But something to the effect of you can three-dimensionally print collagen, skin, and tissue grows on collagen, and they can do it for noses and ears, apparently. Um, uh, breast reconstructive surgeries after uh, breast cancer, it's another one. You can three-dimensionally print uh, some of the tissue there. Um, one of the big things that we're all looking forward to in the amputation world is something called transcutaneo osseointegration, which means transcutaneo through the skin, osseointegration, integration with the skeletal system. The idea that your femur will be able to have a titanium implant, which will go right into it after you know, transfemoral amputation. The titanium implant will go through the skin. The skin will surround it. And then you bolt your, your uh, prosthetic right to that titanium mount structure. So it is you know, G.I. Joe and the Kung Fu grip. You just snap a new one on. Um, that becomes an amazing thing for amputees because the leg becomes a part literally a part of their body instead of through the squishy socket and all this other stuff. But also, apparently, here, here's a weird thing. One of the dividends is they can actually feel the ground. That because it's going through your bone structure, your bone structure has a certain way, a certain type of proprioception that allows you to feel ground and, and density and things like that. Well, you can feel it if it's coming through your skeletal system, not through tissue. So that's another huge one. Um, the, there's a TED Talk on three-dimensionally printing a kidney. And apparently he does a simulation of what that will be like. There are a lot of groups working on that, a lot of research centers um, that are, are looking into that. I don't know how far they go because that's all the bio world, which I don't, I don't follow too much to know, and I don't have enough bio background to, to know it. But there is a ton of energy going into that area. 
Um, there's a researcher out of Singularity and Autodesk and a couple other places named Andrew Hessel, H-E-S-S-E-L, and he writes a lot about that kind of stuff. Um, so there, there's a lot of information, a lot of research going into this area about body augmentation, next generation stuff, replacement parts. Um, it will happen. I'm convinced of that. Um, but the tools need to evolve that much more. Um, 3D printing, you can talk for hours about it, but there's other things you can three-dimensionally print in space. We're working with a group right now that wants to print space stations. Um, others that want to build entire houses, you can three-dimensionally print a house in about a day um, by 3D printing it. So there, it's going in all directions at once. So it's, it's an exciting, crazy, wild-eyed area to be getting into. The stuff I'm doing is actually trivial um, by comparison to some of the really wild-eyed thinking that's happening right now in that industry. One more, one last question. Hi, um, my name is Zach, and I also really liked your lecture. It was very interesting. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned several times that you never tried to create a prosthetic leg that um, looked like a real leg. And I was just wondering what your motivation was to create something that complemented the human body without um, trying to simulate it. I found that in talking, the, the question was about why don't we make something that, that emulates humans in a in a way that, that would actually yeah. trick somebody. Um, I found that the amputees I've talked to have very mixed reactions. Some love the, the, the uh, very flesh and tissue looking ones that have actual hair and toenails and things. Others find that creepy. Um, so we're, we're not trying to second guess anyone's personal taste. But our, our tack is really to think, this is body jewelry in the makes. You know, this is that really, really cool watch or that cool necklace or brooch or earrings or whatever. We, we want to think of this as jewelry. I want to think of this as the Ducati that you get to wear. You know, and how do we get to that level of inspiration? Also, to me, I think there's a degree of honesty about it, that it's, it's letting the person say, yes, and I'm an amputee, and by the way, I've got the coolest leg in the room. Um, currently, that's not really the, the, the message they get to send, but I'd like to see if we can get to that point where people look at them and say, wow, I wish I had something as insanely cool as that leg. Um, not trying to hide it, not trying to disguise it, not trying to emulate something it's not but being entirely proud and reasonable of it in the state that it is. Um, that's, that's the angle that we present. It's not to say that it's right or wrong or there's a better or worse than. It's just there's a certain sentiment that we're trapping into that some people will connect with, and those are the people we want to provide, a, provide kind of a solution and a lifestyle and really give them something. So Thank you. I definitely think that's a better way to go about it than just trying to replicate a fake leg. I thought it was very clever. Thank you. That's, thank you. Yeah. I think we need to give him another really great round of applause. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.